Fungus of all kinds are really becoming popular with a wider range of people. Psilocybin is slowly starting to be legalized for research and therapy, while psilocybin microdosing has exploded in every corner of the country. We are hearing reports of fungus that eats microplastics, how turkey tail helps cure cancer, and how lion's mane mushroom are pretty much your brain's best friend. Of course, culinary mushrooms have been enjoyed by humans forever, but we are seeing a huge resurgence in home and small farm growing of culinary mushrooms, meaning that rare, non-commercial varieties are popping up at farmer's markets and in the neighborhood trades. Last year, I discovered that I totally loved wine cap mushrooms. I had never come across that craft mushroom until gifted it by a home cultivator. Now I'm constantly searching for them. And finally, the fungus in the soil is essential for all the food we eat and the flowers we love, especially cannabis. So many mushroom varieties touching our lives and being helpful in so many ways. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. This month's sponsor is Multiverse Beans at multiversebeans.com. Ten winners will randomly receive a free three-pack of feminized seeds from either Gnome Automatics or Humboldt Seed Company. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. And be sure to check out the Multiverse Beans Instagram. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Stephanie Garcia. Mycologist Stephanie Garcia has a degree in botany and plant pathology and completed her master's program at the University of Hawaii in tropical conservation biology, focusing on below-ground fungal diversity over varying environmental gradients on Hawaii Island. After completing her master's, she proceeded to tour Southeast Asia, studying local plants and mushrooms, and landed back in Oregon, spending time between cannabis harvests and the Bureau of Land Management. She now studies both endo- and ectomycorrhizal fungi and their associations and benefits to various plant hosts as quality compliance manager at mycorrhizal applications. Stephanie and her husband, Emery, are expecting their first child in just a couple weeks, so we are especially glad that she chose to fit us in before that major milestone. And if you listen closely, you will hear their dogs, Norm and Betty, in the background. On today's episode of Shaping Fire, we will make sure we are all on the same page regarding the differences between mycelium, mycorrhiza, endomycorrhiza, and ectomycorrhiza, followed by a deeper discussion about mycelium specifically. During the second set, we will focus on endomycorrhiza, its functions, and how you can damage its functioning by inhibiting the symbiosis taking place in the soil. And we finish the episode with a wide-ranging discussion of best practices for creating a thriving environment for mycelium and mycorrhiza, including inoculants, proper watering, pH, proper nutrition, and the use of ground covers. Welcome to Shaping Fire, Stephanie. Thanks for having me, Shango. So let's start off with two bits of vocabulary that are misused all the time in soil discussion. Mycorrhizae and mycelium will be used, you know, obviously the entire episode today, but it isn't uncommon for folks to use the two words mycorrhizae and mycelium interchangeably, and, and they're not the same thing. So will you start by teasing those apart for us? 
Certainly, yeah. That's a that's a good question. I like that you point out that some people can get certain things confused like that. So when we talk about mycelium, we're actually talking about the vegetative structure of a fungi. So you could think of it as being analogous to plant roots. So you could think of it as fungal roots. So that's what the mycelium, that's what mycelium is. So if you have a mushroom, if you go mushroom hunting and you find a fruiting body, like say you go for morels right now, because it's a perfect time of year to be looking for morels, there's going to be an entire network of their root system underground. Now, when we're talking about mycorrhizae, that's actually describing a symbiotic relationship. It's a mutualism and it's occurring between the plant roots and those fungal roots. So mycorrhizae is, is more of an activity than a physical thing that like that has a name that's a noun. It's 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 more active than that. It it describes this relationship. It isn't it isn't necessarily like oh there's a mycorrhizae right there. It's more <laughs> like ah those are two that that is a host and a fungal network exhibiting mycorrhizae activity. Yeah, yeah, that would be correct. So you know I mentioned the morel earlier. That is a mycorrhizal fungi but you wouldn't call their root system a mycorrhizae, right? So you could say a morel is a mycorrhizal fungi, but when you want to describe what how the morel's mycelium is interacting with its plant host, that would be the mycorrhizal symbiosis. So yeah, mycorrhizae is really describing the symbiosis. It's used incorrectly all the time. And like, <laughs> you know, earlier in my soil knowledge, I definitely was... Um, uh, you know, doing that myself. So, um, and while we're at it, because even though during the first set, we're going to discuss mycelium networks, and then we're going to focus more on mycorrhizae in set two, I am pretty sure that you're going to be talking about mycorrhizae um, as part of your answers during set one. So we we should probably also get the the other key vocabulary that we want to tease apart too, which is the difference between endomycorrhizae and ectomycorrhizae. Yeah, so <clears throat> endomycorrhizae, when you think of endo, you think of inside, or that's a Latin you know, meaning for endo is inside. Um, so really what it's describing is what's happening more on the cellular level inside of the root. But if we go even more broadly, endomycorrhizal fungi form symbiotic relationship with about 80 to 85% of um, plant species. So all of our agro, most of our agricultural crops, um, a lot of our ornamental crops, all grasses. So I call them more of our bread and butter of mycorrhizal fungi because they associate with such a wide range of host plants. Um, now, let's go back down into the root on the cellular level. Hyphae will penetrate into the root and it goes between cells, but it also goes inside the cells. And then inside the cell is really where the nutrient exchange is occurring and the endomycorrhizae they make a specialized structure called arbuscules. 
So that's a site of nutrient exchange. Um, most endomycorrhizal fungi also uh, form vesicles. That's a storage structure. These fungi are really good um, at helping plants overcome drought type conditions. Vesicles, they believe, were you know, one reason why they can do that. So uh, anyway, the endomycorrhizal fungi, you'll also see them or hear them being referred to as AMF, and that just stands for arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. You can also hear or see them being referred to as VAM. That's vesicular arbuscular mycorrhizal, <laughs> mycorrhizal fungi. So they don't refer them anymore, refer to them anymore as the VAM because some species don't produce those vesicles. So yeah, we're getting really detailed there on the endomycorrhizal fungi, but it is important to understand that these hyphae of these types of fungi, they go inside the cell and then the nutrient exchange is happening, happening um, within the cytosolic fluid. Now, ectomycorrhizal fungi, on the other hand, they don't associate with as broad of a host um, range. So they're associating with maybe five to 10% of plant species, mm. primarily conifers, some hardwoods, and then there are some agriculturally important plants that uh, form the ectomycorrhizal symbiosis. So then if we go down to that cellular level again and we compare it to the endomycorrhizal fungi, the ectomycorrhizal fungi also make specialized structures. They do also penetrate into the root, but they also make a, a mantle. So mycelium will cover the outside of the root, kind of like a sock, right? Say your foot is like the root. So the mycelium covers the root on the outside, and then it also penetrates inside the root. But instead of carrying out the nutrient exchange in an individual plant cell, the mycelium travels around the cells, and they call that a hardig net. And so this is another more specialized structure that they make. They don't produce any type of arbuscules or vesicles. Uh, so yeah, they're just they're doing all their nutrient exchange in between cells. And uh, since we're talking primarily about cannabis cultivation and uh, the ecto is really only uh, interacting with, I think you said like 10 or 15% of plants, we're probably going to be talking, when we talk about mycorrhizae today, we're, we're going to be generally assuming we're talking about endomycorrhizae unless you point out otherwise, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, cannabis doesn't associate with ectomycorrhizal fungi, so... Right on. Well, that makes it easier today. <laughs> so, so okay. So that's why I wanted to start out there with the definitions of mycelium, mycorrhizae, and then and then endomycorrhizae, just for everybody's benefit. So, with that said, we will we will uh, jump back and talk uh, much more in detail about mycorrhizae during set two. But but here, let's smooth on in right now to talking about mycelium networks to um, get a really good understanding on what those are. So, so mycelium are the fleshy vegetative white strands that form massive networks in the soil we now know what does it consist of like what what actually do, do the white strands what are they made of 
other than just generally fungus and and how are they made hmm interesting um well fungal cell walls are made of chitin so that's really what they're composed of and they're made through meiosis i mean you know they're growing just in the same way fresh fresh growth would occur from a plant right so they're really exploratory like you said most of them are more whitish tannish in color um mycelium can consist of just one long tubular like structure they can also have septa which um divides divides this long tubular structure um and and for folks who aren't familiar with meiosis um would you just explain that real quick (laughs) sure so i mean that's a it's reproduction, right? Mm-hmm. So we're basically having cell division occur. Um, and then the DNA is being passed. There's a, there's, I mean, it's a pretty uh, technical process and it also depends on the species, right? But even, even what you already said just kind of makes it clear. I, I, what I was trying to getting at is like, what is the, what is the, the mycelium making machine? And the answer is itself is right by, by cellular splitting, just making itself more of itself. Right, right. Right on. So for for those of us who, you know, are transplanting our plants or maybe we're um, out uh, in the field collecting indigenous microorganisms or um, or, or whatever we're doing, um, we'll come across mycelium strands that are like a whole range of colors from like the bright white, which I always think of as, oh, those look really healthy. And whereas some are, you know, more of a whitish gray or some are like a white. A whiterish beige are 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 these different um strains of mycelium that are these different colors or does or does you know a healthy thriving mycelium is it always white and and these colorations are signs of some kind of imbalance yeah that's a really great question um yeah, it, it is really species dependent. Um, you know, morels, for example, they they don't have this bright white necessarily mycelium, especially when you have them in culture. Um, so I would say, you know, that yeah, there may be some type of environmental condition that might make them this more dull yellow. Um, you know, maybe they're not the most healthy, but also we have a lot of different colors of mycelium depending on the species. That's good to know too, because, um, I know, you know, as I said, my question, I thought that I needed it all to be bright and I should not judge my mycelium necks were harshly just because they don't look bright. And cause that could, that could cause me to, uh, incorrectly diagnose a situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, if there are different um, strains of mycelium, um, how do mycelium networks of different species interact? Do they do they you know explore and then butt up to each other and then and then connect even though they're different species? Or are these are these mycelium networks of of different strains? Um, uh, kind of wrapped around each other, but not necessarily connected. That's another really great question, Django. I'm glad <laughs> you're full of them. Uh, so I th- I would say that's really species dependent. We know in some mycorrhizal fungi, there is competition. Mm. 
So, um, you know, I know of one researcher that works on rhizopogon that is an ectomycorrhizal fungi, um, but they'll be more competitive for their resources. So um, they don't necessarily, they may, you know, they may just exist wrapped around each other, but really they're, they're competing for resources. Um, so, so, yeah. so in that case, um, I think that most of us think about the mycelium networks as being these, these nutrition transport networks and they're connecting everybody. And, you know, in my mind, I go so far as to think, oh, they're trying to help everybody get along, but actually there is competition between mycelial relationships. So they are, they are bonding with networks that they see as allies and then and then turning a cold shoulder and not connecting to networks that they see as competitive yeah you could think of it that way but one thing i do want to just clarify is that um there are there are other there's another group of fungi that we're kind of forgetting about a little bit we're forgetting about our saprophytic fungi so they're not necessarily creating a network between plants um, you know, amongst each other, their mycelium is really there to decay dead organic matter. And they're the recyclers, right? I mean, they're recycling the duff. And so those, those are a little different in that they're creating their own little network just so that they can eat more, right? So they can decay more and then eventually maybe they can fruit. You know, I think you're. I think you're right. That was good that you picked that up. I. I definitely think that I was putting the responsibilities for mycelium and saprophytic fungus into the same basket. Yeah, that's good for me to tease those apart too. So, so, um, so the the mycelium networks. While I was picturing them being large, like like in uh, covering a wide space, and therefore had this idea that they were also going from plant to plant. I don't know exactly how I was picturing that, but um, but really, uh, perhaps mycelium networks are a little bit more localized based on, um, I don't know, the project or the, the responsibility of that particular mycelium network? Yeah, I like that you can think of it almost like their little project, because mm -hmm. even thinking outside of the saprophytic fungi that are decaying this dead organic matter, we also have parasitic fungi, right? So... We know that those could spread from, um, you know, they, those could certainly make a network and go from tree to tree, but they could also be more localized, just dependent on is their host available? Um, what can they infect, right? Um, where do they infect? Because we have other fungi that are primarily existing on leaves that are causing damage there, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I think when we think about mycelium, and one reason why I love mycorrhizal fungi so much is that we really think of them more as the protagonist. And we want to think of mycelium as being this just incredible thing and this network that spreads, you know, between the trees and like you say, try to, you know, help everybody get along and distribute out nutrients really well. Um, so I think when we think of mycelial networks, we really do think about the more beneficial 
kind and that would be more you know like the mycorrhizal fungi mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and if i tend to drift into giving um credit to mycelium that's for saprophytic fungus be, be sure to call me out on it again because i don't want to be spreading the bro science we're, we're here to get it right so. <laughs> i mean but those are great too because you know i mean we would have just meters and meters of duff in our forests and <laughs> And there's also some very tasty saprophytic fungi, so we don't want to forget about those. For, for sure. All right, so so let's talk about some of these tasks that um, that we rely on mycelium uh, to do. So so um, why don't you just in, instead of me like just kind of like trying to pull a list out of the air, um, you're you're the expert. So so I'll, let me just kind of hand you the mic and, and tell us a little bit about the the varied tasks that mycelium is doing um, in the soil, um, you know, as part of its role. Sure. Yeah, and I do just want to say, you know, I'm I still don't consider myself an expert. I just consider myself, you know, constantly uh trying to educate myself in the in this pursuit of knowledge specifically with fungi. So, um I appreciate you saying that, but uh, you know, you can be humble, but like we, we all we all heard your your credentials at the beginning of this show, and and you're here because like you know you're kind of the expert. So so I oh. I, I, appre- I appreciate your humility on it, but uh, I have a feeling you have all the information that we're looking for. Well, I'll strive I'll strive to meet those expectations. <laughs> okay, so you want to know about the roles of mycelium mm-hmm. within the soil, please? Okay, so I think I think mycelium's you know its main objective and it may be more of a selfish objective on its part is to gain enough resources to reproduce Mm -hmm. right that's going to be the main goal it's like i'm going to explore the soil i'm going to try to gain resources enough to take care of myself um so i think that's one objective is that the mycelium is getting what it needs to to go through its own life cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another thing is just very exploratory. I think there's like, let's say these side benefits of mycelium and what it's doing within our soil. So for those mycelium to be um, exploring the soil, they're really contributing to soil structure, um, to water infiltration, which also helps preventing runoff and providing climate resistance. So I think there's um, there's a big role for them there. Um, if I can go back to my mycorrhizal fungi for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, our vascular mycorrhizal fungi, they release a glycoprotein, it's called glomalin. And that is just this incredible protein that helps to um, aggregate soil and that's really fascinating not only for this um, you know helping to keep soil structure and the water, water infiltration but it also can hold on to carbon when your soil has more structure to it and then those nutrients are more available so I think that there's um, a really big role for mycelium to play in some of this um, nutrient cycling. Excuse me. We also we also know that some mycelium will actually excrete secrete enzymes, 
And that can help make a lot of different nutrients more biologically available, ones that wouldn't be otherwise. And then it's it allows, you know, this soluble nutrients to actually be absorbed and then transported to the plant. Um, so there's, I think that these are some of, some of the main ones just right away that I'm, that I can think of. Um, Let's talk about the transportation of uh, nutrition. So uh, I'm realizing now that uh, some of what I imagined um, mycelium networks doing, which would be like moving nutrition between different plants, that's probably a, 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 a larger role than mycelium is doing, and that might be more of a, a saprophytic fungus uh, role. Is, is the mycelium going to be mostly um, moving nutrition from the surrounding soil environment and just bringing it back to um, the, the root zone, um, as uh, essentially to the mycorrhiza, which is going to interact with the, with the plant? Um, uh, so it, it's kind of like it is it is out searching for nutrition for its own um, uh, life benefit, but then by doing that, it is also bringing that nutrition back to the mycorrhiza, which is which will we'll discuss more in detail later. Is then is then interacting with the plant. Is is my range of where it's doing that nutrition work? Do I have that right where it's a bit closer to the root zone? Yeah, so I think that the saprophytic fungi and the mycorrhizal fungi, they're really working together. So the saprophytic fungi, that those fungi may be able to break down, um, you know, specifically more carbon than the mycorrhizal fungi. And as we know, mycorrhizal fungi, they, they're really associating with plants because they can't, they're not able to access the carbon on their own. That's that's the exchange. Um, I sh I'll save this for the next <laughs> session, really. But um, so let's say the saprophytic fungi, their primary role is going to be decaying this dead organic matter, um, you know, making carbon available for the plant. But then the fungi or the mycorrhizal fungi, they're they're more exploratory, and they're actually able to deliver. The nutrients to the plant through their symbiosis right mm -hmm. so the saprophytic fungi they may make some of these nutrients biologically available but they don't really have that delivery mechanism unless they're very close to the plant root zone so the mycorrhizal fungi and their mycelial network is really incredible because they can increase the root um, absorption zone like our plants can only reach so far. Mm -hmm. uh, mycelium is so much smaller uh, in size than a plant root, right? And then they can travel for so much longer than our plant roots can. So they can really become exploratory in the soil. Penetrate areas that our plants cannot, and then they're able to access nutrients that the plant isn't, and then their mycelium is like a little highway mm -hmm. um, of nutrients going to the plant. Um, I do also want to mention, which I just think is interesting, <laughs> that mycorrhizal fungi, um, you know, there's evidence 
evidence to suggest that they've evolved from saprophytic fungi. So some mycorrhizal fungi still do hold the genes that can do these other types of breakdown of nutrients. Um, so I just think that's really interesting because some mycorrhizal fungi we say are obligate. They have to have a plant host because they can't access their own carbon. But then we know some mycorrhizal fungi are not obligate and they can they still maintain some of, some of these genes so that they can exist without the plant host. So so um, you know we're big supporters of the soil <clears throat> of the soil food web ex explanation for looking at soil here. What role does mycelium play in the soil assisting microbe communities and, and other life in the soil? Because I'm I'm guessing that it isn't just a relationship between you know, uh, uh, breaking down nutrition and transporting nutrition towards the root zone. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that that all the inhabitants of the um, rhizosphere have got varying relationships with mycelium that are beneficial. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. Well, we did talk, you know, briefly about soil structure mm -hmm. and water infiltration, right? And this hyphae, um, you know, going through the soil and allowing that infiltration of water and then just helping the soil actually hold the water, right? And then we did speak a little bit about how when you have this really more positive, let's say, soil structure, it can hold on um, to carbon more readily. And so we know that um, our soil organic carbon is food for microbes, right? So if you have an increased amount of soil carbon, you typically see an increase in, in the microbial activity. So I think mycelium plays, <laughs> it's like cyclical, right? So they grow and they explore and then carbon's held on to. And then these microbes are like, oh, this is awesome. You know, I'm going to, we're going to, there's going to be more microbes because we have more food and and then they thrive and then the soil just becomes um, just more, it's just more and more healthy, right? Right, Every, everybody gets fed when mycelium's doing its job. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I know that some people talk about how mycelium can help remediate the soil that's been contaminated by a, a whole range of things. But specifically, uh, I'm curious about um, uh, 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 pathogenic funguses like that, that that cause like you know um, fusarium root rot and things like that. Can can our ally mycelium clean up pathogens like that in the soil? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I told you I really like the protagonist fungi, so my yeah. my plant pathology uh -huh. isn't as up to speed. But it just made me think of um, you know, there's there are products out there that are they're well, those are more bacterial that are kind of fighting the fungi. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of these this um, actinovate. You know, that's a product that. Um, but it's bacterial and that's fighting off the fungi. I don't know. I think that's such a good question, but I do remember this one little project uh, I did when I was living in Hawaii with a friend and he was really into IMO4s mm -hmm. and, um, you know, his knowledge is so much greater than mine. So I'm not going to try to explain anything like that, but 
we were traveling around to these coffee plantations that had this um, pathogenic fungi that occurred on the coffee leaf. And we made a solution of the IMO4 and it's hard to say exactly which component maybe was fighting, but we we just sprayed this on the coffee um, you know trees that had this fungal infection and came back and scored it. And the ones that we scored, there was a significant impact and reduction of that fungal infection. Now we know IMO4s don't just contain fungi, right? So. Um, you know, it was a fun little project, but still kind of hard to say. And I'm not really sure of the research on that. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. And and I, I think that, that your answer points to two things. Number one, for folks who are interested in, in well, cannabis, but, but uh, fungal networks in general um, and are just kind of coming up, um, you know, and, and, and through university, there is a lot of research around oh, yeah. cannabis and soil science and fungus to be had. You know, this is, this is a great time to become, you know, have an interest in cannabis and become, and becoming out of school. And then, and then the second thing that your answer points out is, um, you know, we're always talking about the power of, of, of indu- in- industrial, indigenous microorganisms here. Mm-hmm. And IMO4, uh, you know, while it has got a significant representation of fungus in it, it's this magical combination of nature that just, just rebalances things, like in, in your example. And, uh, and, you know, so many of us uh, container-based cannabis growers, um, we struggle w- with fusarium. So anytime I talk to somebody who focuses their work on, on the root zone, I kind of ask everybody, hey, do you have a good solution for fusarium? Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, everybody kind of says the same thing, like, 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 you know, the research hasn't actually found a really good one yet. And generally you should just replace your soil. But, but this is the first time that IMO4 has been brought up and, and that makes a lot of sense. It would be interesting if, if, if somebody were to have, you know, say, and say like, a, like an installed, you know, large scale bed where it would be a real pain in the butt to replace the soil unlike you know like a 20 gallon pot or something which is really easy mm-hmm. um you know doing a doing a significant application of imo4 might be one might be one fusarium solution so all right well i don't want to get too distracted off on the fusarium thing but <laughs> but while we while we're there um you know i figured we might as well hit it so so all right great so um so so now that we are understanding what the mycelium networks are doing and that they are, are breaking down nutrition and bringing it back to the the rhizosphere where, where um, I guess I'll say for the moment, it gets handed off to mycorrhiza that does the exchange with the plant. That we will pick up on set two. So let's go ahead and take our first short break. And then when we come back, we will start talking about mycorrhiza. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is mycologist Stephanie Garcia. And, you know, without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know you heard of them on Shaping Fire. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. 
Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or Dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. You've heard me talk about the award-winning cannabis seeds that come from the analytical breeding program of Seth and Eric Crawford, who founded Oregon CBD Seeds. In fact, Seth was a guest on Shaping Fire in 2020 to talk about triploid genetics. Seth and Eric are now releasing high-THC seeds for home growers and farms as Grow the Revolution Seeds at gtrseeds.com. Their high THC seeds are extraordinary in that they will start to flower at 16.5 hours of daylight instead of the typical 14.5 hours of daylight. That means in most regions, your plants will start to flower outdoors in the middle of July instead of the middle of August, which means these photoperiod plants finish in September and not October, totally upending the photoperiod seed market. Seth and Eric took their prized early flowering CBG line and bred it to some of the most desired verified genetics out there, including Sour Diesel, Triangle Kush, Wedding Cake, Chem Dog, Skittles, and others. These crosses all express powerful photoperiod terpene profiles and THC, giving you a great high. GTR Seeds has a new THCV line with plants like Double Durbin and Gigantor that boast one-to-one THC to THCV, and people want that THCV. GTR Seeds are very consistent, true-growing, inbred F1s from stabilized inbred parent lines. These seeds are nearly homogenous, and the plants should all grow the same. There is only one phenotype in every pack available as diploids and triploids. Seth and Eric's company is still family-owned, patient and employee-centric, and partially powered by their two acres of solar panels. Everyone can purchase these seeds and the entire catalog of Oregon CBD seeds at gtrseeds.com. Go to gtrseeds.com today and choose something revolutionary for your next indoor or outdoor run. Online cannabis seed distributors often seem to be all the same, but Multiverse Beans constantly works to provide you with cannabis seeds and a buying experience that you won't find elsewhere. 
Multiverse Beans works directly with the breeders to secure as many packs of your favorites as possible so that they have your favorite beans long after others have sold out. Some shops simply buy breeder minimums, but I get messages all the time from breeders saying some version of Multiverse asked to buy my entire run. At MultiverseBeans.com, you can find rare cannabis seeds from Night Owl Seeds, including the Dark Owl sublabel. Mephisto Genetics, Square One Genetics, Robin Hood Seeds, and Ethos, and so many others. Multiverse also initiates projects with breeders to secure exclusive packs that you simply won't find elsewhere. Multiverse founder Paul Lal sees himself not only as a curator of the best cannabis seeds available, but also as a collaborator with breeders, trying to bring novel crosses to the market that his customers are asking for. Multiverse Beans also creates exclusive stickers for their popular seed varieties that are available free only when you order those seeds from Multiverse. Check out their stickers like the badass recent slap for Mothman by Gnome Automatics on Instagram at Multiverse Beans. And finally, the freebies. As you'd expect, Paul sends quality freebies with every order. And when you spend at least $150, Multiverse allows you to choose your freebies from their special selections. You can get a 10% discount off regularly priced items when you use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout. Sign up for their mailing list to be eligible for their monthly seed giveaway worth $250. So go to multiversebeans.com now for a buying experience you won't get anywhere else. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and my guest today is mycologist, Stephanie Garcia. So, um, during the first set, we learned all about mycelium and that it is also not saprophytic fungus, and all of the wonderful things that mycelium do um, first for itself, then for the plant, but then also for everybody else who hangs out in the, in the root zone. So, now we're going to talk specifically about the symbiotic relationship between um, mycelium networks and plants that are expressed through uh, through mycorrhiza. So, so we touched on mycorrhiza a bit at the at the beginning of the first set to to separate endomycorrhizae and ectomycorrhizae um, based on how they. Um, um, interact differently with with the with the root zone with the roots themselves. Um, let's start with. How does um, mycorrhiza colonize the plant root system of cannabis? From from what I understand, you know, there is a point when a when a plant is I don't know new or young, where um, it, it is not it is not fully colonized by mycorrhiza um, by by fungus that is is is. Boy, it's hard to talk about it once once mycorrhiza is not a noun. Once it's a description <laughs> of a symbiotic relationship, it's a lot. It's a different way to talk <laughs> about it. So, so how does how do you talk about it, Stephanie? I didn't realize. <laughs> like, 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 how do you talk about it in the in 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 as as a professional who talks about this all day? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could, you know, instead of maybe just focusing on the mycorrhiza or, my, you know, mycorrhizal fungi, you can say the mycorrhizal hyphae or 
the fungal hyphae. You I know? see. So using the um, word mycorrhiza as a as a as a description of 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 the the type of fungus. So so it'd be appropriate to say, um, you know, Stephanie, uh, would you explain to us how mycorrhiza fungi colonize the plant root system of cannabis? Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll yeah, take, sure. I'll take, I'll take that. All right. And we'll go with that. All right, thank you. Yeah, so yeah, sure. So so when we think about the beginning of the symbiosis, we first want to ask ourselves, how is this hyphae growing? Where is this coming from, right? Um, so now in nature, hyphae is the greatest, let's say, propagule that we have. And so when we say propagule, we're talking about, um, if we think about cannabis, a propagule for cannabis is its seed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think about fungi, there can be a few different types of propagules and specifically our muscular mycorrhizal fungi. So in nature, hyphae or mycelium is the greatest propagule in nature. So we can start with um, we can start with fragments of mycelium. We can start with spores. That's another thing that would be considered a propagule, right? We're trying to propagate this um, life form and However, it propagates, it should be able to then become an adult or, you know, go past this vegetative stage. So we've got, um, we've covered the mycelium, the spore, and then our muscular mycorrhizal fungi are interesting in that pieces of root, or we can call root fragments, that previously contained or were colonized by the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi can also act as a propagule. So some of these structures that are inside the root, like hyphae, uh, are produced within the root. Uh, those can also act as propagules. So if you were um, incorporating some mycorrhizal uh, inoculum into your growth system, you're gonna have some of these propagules you put, right? And you're probably going off this label recommendation. Uh, to my understanding, there aren't any products currently in the US that claim uh, mycelium as a propagule. And I think that has something to do more with shelf life, um, possibly with how you quantify it, you know, how it can be regulated things like that. So um, primarily, if you were to like, let's say, get some mycorrhizal inoculum and look at it under the microscope, you're going to see spores and you'll probably see pieces of root. So you're going to start with that, right? And then from that, the mycelium will grow. Um, That's going to be growing, you know, within your soil. There's a lot of research about, you know, the signaling that goes on for these fungi and how do they actually connect with the plant root, right? Um, That's really fascinating stuff because way back when it was really understood or thought, you know, believed that um, the plant regulated the symbiosis. So we know that plants release root exudates, Um, We know that there's a lot of other types of biochemical signaling going on. 
But now some of the people researching this signaling are realizing that it's a, it's a, a lot more complex than we thought initially and that potentially the fungi has a little bit more say in how it connects. Mm -hmm. I used to think of it like, you know, the plant is there, the fungus approaches, like it's trying to get into a party and the plant's like, okay, you know, you can bring in nutrients, you could bring in beverages for me or, you know, whatever yeah, it is. that's how I was taught too. Yeah, absolutely. Right, like come on in. Um, and why would the plant not want to accept that it's almost like an insurance policy for the plant that it's going to be getting enough nutrients and, um, you know, water and things like this. But now there's some, you know, research going on to say that there's, um, it's a lot more complex communication between the fungi and the plant. Um, but we do know that root exudates are released. I think we're still really trying to understand root exudates. I know currently there's about 100,000 compounds that have been identified, um, you know, that roots are putting out there, but we know that they play a role in the germination of spores um, and then for that ultimate connection, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, once the, once the mycelium approaches the root, there's a very complex conversation that occurs. And then um, ultimately they're able to penetrate into, into the root system. And then they continue to grow. And it's actually a physical penetration. It, it's, that's not just like symbolic. It actually, you know, because of the size relationship, uh, the mycelium strands can actually enter the root itself, not just the root zone. Yep, that is correct. And it was it, even just today, we were looking for these uh, special structures that they make when they penetrate. It's a hypopodium, and it's a just small piece of tissue, and it anchors the mycelium to the root mm -hmm. itself. But yep, it, it completely penetrates that and just continues to, to explore. You know, this idea of, of uh, these, these endomycorrhizae spending some part of their life um, inside the plant root um, totally reminds me of the, of the bacterial rhizophagy cycle that we discussed in detail with uh, Jeff Lowenfels back on Shaping Fire 96. Um, you know, are, 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 are these two, I don't know, areas of science related in science at all? Or is it just in my head because they're just two different things that enter the plant for part of their life? You know, I think everything's connected in, you know, in ways like that. And I know that there's a lot of research on now what they're, uh, I don't know if this is really a term that's been coined, but mycorrhiza helper bacteria. Mm. Um, so I think things are definitely working synergistically and... Um, so yeah, I think that that's a fair comparison. Right on. So let's talk about one of the one of the the, the roles that the mycorrhizae play uh, in this in this relationship with the plant. Um, uh, the first one that I ever learned about, and I, I'm certainly not suggesting I, I know a lot about it, is is the the sugar water for the sugar and water for minerals exchange. Um, and would you wa walk us through that that like cornerstone process? Yeah, sure. So 
that that really is at the heart of this exchange at the heart of this symbiosis so we talked a little bit in the earlier segment about um how mycorrhizal fungi they are reliant on the plant host for their carbon and that's all coming through photosynthates through that photosynthetic process and um, so that's really what the fungus wants from the plant Uh, we know that some fungi can exist some of the mycorrhizal fungi can exist um, without the plant host but primarily most of these species are dependent on their carbon acquisition through photosynthates Mm -hmm. Um, so that's really what they're after and the plant is willing to engage in this relationship because they know (laughs) and you know they somehow know that uh, the fungi is able to deliver different and it's not just the you know more minerals or micronutrients but even macronutrients right Mm -hmm. so um they they know that the if they allow this relationship to occur that they're also going to benefit in this other way um that maybe they wouldn't be able to to do as well on their own I guess when somebody shows up with all of these, you know, quality inputs, you you're all you get used to it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And why would you not? Why would you say no? It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's go. So, um, can does does mycorrhiza have the ability to live in the soil without a root or something, some a root or other, uh, in order to do this uh, symbiotic exchange? Like, you know, it might not be cannabis, but perhaps it's you know, you know, a dandelion or something else. But can the mycorrhizal fungus survive without a root? Um, there are many species that are obligate mycorrhizal fungi, so they have to have a plant host to carry out their life cycle. Now, if they didn't have access to a plant, couldn't they go dormant? Certainly. I see. That's what um, How long would that last? I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, we know that they're are many fungi, many mycorrhizal fungi that they just simply cannot carry out their life cycle without their plant host. So they're going to need that root system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While preparing and doing my background research for the episode, it was really interesting to read um, all the different I'll just throw them, I guess, in a big basket of processes that mycorrhizal fungi um, are able to do. Like, you know, know, that cornerstone sugar waters for mineral exchange, I'm kind of like picturing this, this mycorrhiza in the middle, like, you know, kind of acting like a like a bartering agent you know going hey you got those there you got those here i'll give those here okay all right go you know Mm -hmm. kind of like kind of like you know uh, directing traffic almost right right but then but then as you continue to read it's like oh also mycorrhizae can can do this chemical uh transition and then also if it finds this it can do this and like the, the more i read i'm like it, mycorrhiza has got this whole toolbox of 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 biological transitions and trades, I guess, that it can do 
to make sure that the signals and the nutrition and and, and the water and everything is, is all being transferred back and forth. And I got to tell you that that it, it kind of makes them pretty badass because they're essentially making their own tools, right? There's all these different things that they can do. Would you explain some of the ways that mycorrhiza defends the cannabis plant itself from like disease and pathogens and and other things that might do the plant harm? Yeah, yeah, it really is fascinating when you when you think about them, and it's one reason I just think the kingdom fungi is so incredible, and why we do need more people to step into the field right and how Uh, it also like when you start reading it it really does start to read like it's intelligent you know mm -hmm. like it really like like it's really amazing especially when you like see like a tiktok or something that shows fungus like beating puzzles and stuff and it's all like Mm -hmm. damn you know so anyway uh please please how 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 does the mycorrhiza actually defend the cannabis plants from diseases and pathogens by using these various methods it has yeah, yeah, there's a few things that come to mind right away. I mean, I would say that overall, if you have a plant that's receiving, you know, more water, um, more nutrients than the plant's able to acquire on its own, the plant health overall is just going to be better, right? Mm-hmm. So you're just going to have a more robust plant, um, a plant that's maybe more resistant to an infection, Um things like that. So that's one thing that just comes to mind right away is that if your plant overall is more healthy, then it's going to be able to fight off different things that might come its way. Um, One thing that is um, pretty well researched is tolerance to not only things like saline soils, but also um, heavy metals. So if for some reason um that is happening for you um the fun the fungi they can actually mitigate how that is delivered to the plant and essentially hold it within its mycelium so So i think so it like pockets it away so that away from the mechanics of the plant Mm -hmm. so so that the plant is shielded from it yeah and i think and it's interesting, I mean, outside of cannabis growing or, um, you know, things like that, there's a lot of saline soils and, you know, in our world. So um, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, we've done some experiments where we, we're just straight feeding in plant salt water mm-hmm. and the, you know, mycorrhizal colonized plants are just, they just look so good. And so we haven't done too much on the heavy metals, but there's there's quite a bit of research on heavy metal uptake and mitigation of those heavy metals um so i think that that's really an interesting aspect and things that they can do for your plants i know that there's other research on prevention of infection um and I, I don't know if that's just due to an increase in overall plant health or if there's some other mechanism behind that that we don't fully understand yet. Right on. So, um, looking at the next question I have for you, I have a feeling that this is going to be 
uh, one that you say, ah, Shango, that's for saprophytic fungus. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask you anyway, because I'm super curious of the answer, even if it is saprophytic. So, so, so I was going to ask you that, you know, cannabis cultivators love ground cover and companion plants for lots of reasons. One being that, you know, the plants can all talk to each other and trade nutrients and, you know, create pest defense. And then I was going to say, would you explain how mycelium, you know, processes a signaling system, but that's probably not mycelium in retrospect, is it? Um, I guess I'm having a hard time understanding on the signaling system Uh, between the plants. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Like, like, like we we hear about when groups of plants, even if they're different varieties are planted together, um, uh, uh, you know, then an aphids will attack one, uh, the plants will signal to the other local plants that it's getting chomped on by aphids, so the individual plants can use whatever its strategy is to not get aphids. Oh, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I don't really know about that. I wouldn't necessarily give all the saprophytic fungi credit for that. Uh- <laughs> right on. But it definitely tells me that, it, like, you know, since you study mycorrhiza and you don't know this particular thing, that, that mm-hmm. I definitely have put this activity in the wrong bucket. Well, I know that there is some signaling of infection from tree to tree that are colonized, you know, by fungi into, you know, increased defenses or transfer nutrients over here because now this plant is infected. So I know that there's communication in that way. Um, So I wouldn't put it past that. I just don't know if I could speak to that. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, So um, let's see here. So the, the more we talk today, the more I get this sense that mycelium is more about transport and and breaking down nutrition and and moving it on a highway towards the root zone um but when the trish, but but when the nutrition gets to the root zone the the mycorrhiza um symbiosis um with the plant kind of takes over and and does the actual barter transmutation or process of 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 bringing that nutrition into the plant through this mutualistic relationship, um, and then the plant is then you know sending the nutrients that it's sharing back down to the mycorrhiza to the mycorrhiza activity mycelium, and then that goes back down the line what i would like to know is there is there anything physiologically different at that connection point between the mycelium and the plant root um where where we would say oh uh that is mycorrhizal that's mycorrhizal fungus you can tell by looking at it versus does it just look like regular mycelium that's just doing a different activity um so when you're looking at the mycelium itself yeah yeah you know i don't think i could really tell a difference Um, that's really, that's really interesting because the way that all of us, I mean, and and we cannabis people, we talk about a lot of stuff wrong. Right. Um, but, but we always talk, we talk about, you know, mycorrhizal fungi as if it is like, like, you know, an, an absolutely different type of type of fungus. And, and the more we talk, the more that I realize that, that kind of as a, as a, as an industry, we talk about it wrong. Mm 
Mm. Now, I will say with um, like ectomycorrhizal fungi, we talked a little bit about this mantle of mycelium that covers the root system. Mm -hmm. You can certainly find roots like that and you can know for sure like this is mycelium that is from, this is an ectomycorrhizal fungi, right? Mm -hmm. It's very obvious where the endomycorrhizal fungi or amf that's a little bit more tricky because they don't make this like mantle it's like this mat of mycelium over the root system um so there is that you know i just like kind of had that thought in there but Mm -hmm. yeah i mean if you saw this mat of mycelium next to your plant and next to the plant roots and that would be hard for me to know unless i went I collected some roots and then I went through the process of clearing the pigmentation, staining it, right? And then visualizing it under the scope. Right on. Well, oh, go ahead. I didn't mean, I thought, thought you were done. Go ahead. No, pretty much. Oh, I was okay. just, you know, to make sure that this is, this was, this was the mycorrhizal fungi that was responsible for all that other mycelium i saw but to distinguish it yeah i think would be kind of challenging right on thank you all right so um so to 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 end this second set um i just want to ask you one uh ectomycorrhizae question because when i read this preparing for the show it caught me way off guard and i would like to learn more about this if you know about it i read that ectomycorrhizae have been known to lure springtails to obtain nitrogen from them how the heck does that happen (laughs) i don't know i don't know anything about that but i'm certainly gonna look into that after this have you ever heard outside of this particular example have you ever um uh you know come across examples of of mycorrhizae you know, acting like they are, are 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 trapping anything like that. I mean, when we learned how, like, you know, you know, aphids farm and things like, or no, no, it's the the ants farm the the aphid larva. Like, that's that's some really interesting stuff to happen at that that level of biology, right? And so, so have you heard, you know, of any other examples of mycorrhizae doing that sort of thing? You know, it makes me think of like cordyceps and how that can drive. Um, certain insects like it can take Mm -hmm. over the neurological system drive them to the top of the canopy um eventually consume them completely Uh, i haven't ever heard that with the ectos uh but i do know that ectos have a lot more claims um to prevent like let's say insect herbivory i don't know if that's just because that mantle is you know covering the root system so it's like this physical shield of defense for the plant Mm -hmm. um but just knowing that there are other mechanisms like the cordyceps you know i'm kind of a romantic when it comes to fungi though i'm Uh like they can do anything Uh right so (laughs) i'm i'm definitely curious about about what you read there and now I want to look into that, but it's not something I'm really aware of. Right on. Well, I got I got it uh, just from an article I found through Wikipedia, so it's there if you want it. You know, it, it's really interesting too to uh, to look at all the different tools that the mycorrhiza has. You know, it's got it's got different processes. It's got it's got barters that it can be in the middle of to get what it needs to get done. Um, you know, it's got it's got you know like like the the, the soil version of like 
you know, chemical signals and, and what, you know, and smells, I think of terpenes, they may or may not be root terpenes, but, but the idea of like all these, all these different tools it's got, I, I imagine like, oh yeah, the ectomycorrhizae is, you know, excreting some chemical that, that springtails love. And then when it gets close enough, I imagine like how the hell does a how how, how does fungus move fast enough to catch a springtail? Right, you know, but right. again, you already said you don't know, so it's it's hard to not wonder though. You know, well, it it kind of just reminds me of um, enzymes that are released, right? They they are these types of like digestive enzymes. You can think of them like that um, to break down the you know non biologically available nutrients. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, when you think about how slow the fungi move, <laughs> which is, you know, one reason I like them, they just like stay put, right? But, um, but yeah, that's, that's a good question. And yeah, we'll have to, we'll, we'll have to try to get somebody that's listening in to uh, enlist in a PhD project on this. Right on. Excellent. All right. So let's go ahead and take our second uh, commercial break. We will be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is mycologist Stephanie Garcia. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend gas lamp seeds to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. You probably already know Gaslamp Seeds as Hembra Genetics. Hembra recently changed their name to Gaslamp Seeds. Gaslamp Seeds is not just another seed bank. Gaslamp is a female-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 60 breeders and over a thousand strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Gaslamp Seeds has something for everyone, with over 650 feminized strains, 300 regular varieties, and over 200 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust, like Compound Genetics, Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, In-House, Fast Buds, Gnome Automatics, and Ethos. And we both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Gaslamp to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you so fast. But Gaslamp Seeds cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. Want some extra freebies? Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout, and they will give you an additional set of gas lamp provided freebies. That's an extra $30 in free seeds. Buy seeds from good folks who will send you great seeds reliably every time. Visit gaslampseeds.com today. That's Gaslamp Seeds. The cannabis seed market is filled with big name and hype breeders fighting to get your attention. And occasionally you discover a breeder who is breeding because it is the only thing they care to do and they would be doing it even if they never made a dime. That's my friend Craig Hartsaw, who makes seeds as magnetic genetics. Craig comes from five generations of farmers and is earning his master's degree in horticulture right now. He's been growing cannabis for 15 years and been breeding for nine. 
He hasn't sold many seeds because he really isn't a sales guy, but I've personally been growing his seeds for years, and I know I can always rely on his seeds to germinate, thrive, and smell and taste great. I suggested to Craig that he should probably sell some seeds and asked if he had enough stockpiled to bother. Much to my shock, he was sitting on five full menus in cold storage that he produced in the last two years and hadn't even tried to sell any of them. He was simply too busy breeding. Well, we his friends convinced him to make his damn seeds available to the people, and now they are. For the first time anywhere, you can now buy magnetic genetic seeds at Neptune Seed Bank and on Strainly.io. Neptune Seed Bank has just picked up Magnetic Genetics for a trial to gauge your interest. They are carrying three strains from his Mean Mug, Prominence, and Turpinado menus, which are exclusive to Neptune. It's an easy way to score his seeds. You can pick up those menus plus his Hillbilly Skunk and Candy Breath Crosses and more on his profile page on Strainly.io. If you want very affordable seeds that are exceptional quality with rare terpene profiles from a good guy, go to NeptuneSeedBank.com or Strainly.io. Sometimes it is fun to buy the hype thing from the brand you admire, but when you're ready to buy the strain you'll love from an obscure mad scientist, you're ready for Magnetic Genetics. MagneticGenetics.org and on Instagram, Magnetic Genetics. There are a lot of good people launching new businesses in cannabis, psilocybin, and other psychedelics, and it's a very strange time for us. In the same moment that psilocybin mushrooms are illegal at the federal level, they are becoming increasingly legal in states across the country. These businesses leading the way into the future of plant medicines require specialized legal representation by attorneys who have depth not only in litigation, mergers, and acquisitions, but also in psychedelic and other plant medicines. Green Light Law Group has been empowering cannabis businesses since 2014, and as the market has diversified into psilocybin and other plant medicines, Greenlight has been right there, evolving with their diverse clients to provide legal expertise with a high level of legal acumen, creative strategy, and precision that comes with an intimate and specific understanding of both business law and plant medicine. If you are a business owner trying to navigate the layered local and national drug laws on your own, you are at risk of fumbling. These confusing and quickly changing laws complicate everything. Greenlight Law Group is ready to help you when hit with a lawsuit, or because you were shafted by a vendor or business partner, or simply because you want to stay legal and could use some preventative guidance before cultivating a controlled substance as an entrepreneur. Greenlight Law Group is a collection of folks who care profoundly about their work, and I know this is true because I know the folks from Greenlight. There is a huge difference between a big legal firm who has decided to start representing a few drug companies versus working with a collection of high-integrity, passionate lawyers who are personally interested in new plant medicines and firmly believe in their power to heal. Contact Greenlight Law Group today and learn more about the services they can offer your industry-leading cannabis or psychedelics company. That's Greenlight Law Group at greenlightlawgroup.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shangolos, and my guest today is mycologist Stephanie Garcia. So here we are in the third set. During the first set, we, we talked about uh, mycelium networks and, and the roles they do and don't play in the soil. 
And then we talked about mycorrhizae symbiosis between the mycelium and the plant and all the myriad tools that um, mycorrhiza um, have got in the toolbox to be able to, to do all the various processes that they're responsible for. Well, here in set three, we're going to talk about supporting mycelium and the mycorrhiza symbiosis um, in your garden. So we're, we're going to talk about some best practices and some maybe some less than best practices. So, so Stephanie, you know, today we've been mostly talking about living soil because that's mostly what Shaping Fire, you know, talks about as a show, but lots of cannabis growers use soilless mediums like, like cocoa coir and peat or rock wool. Um, do mycelium networks grow in these other non-living soil mediums? Yeah, yeah, they certainly can. Um, is it the... It, so, all right, so you say they can. So, so do they, because you don't have as complex of a biological environment in some of these soilless mediums as you would have in living soil, um, do they present themselves differently or are there only particular strains of mycelium that can take to that environment? Um, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but it just seems to me that like with, with, um, so much less of the biology that happens in living soil that's not in cocoa, peat, and rock wool, that there would be some kind of um, differences between how um, mycelium and mycorrhiza present themselves, but but perhaps it's not. Yeah, you know, I think one thing, we've done, we've done a few hydroponic studies, um, not with cannabis, but I know that there have also been some hydroponic studies in cannabis with, um, with mycorrhizal fungi and um, I know that they're, they're able to establish in that type of system and maybe, um, you know, maybe they're not as reliant on the nutrients, uh, because they're really communicating with the plant root system. Mm -hmm. Um, I know in these studies that I've read about with cannabis that they, um, they've shown to increase plant vigor. And so, um, yeah, I would think that they would act somewhat different, but as far as the benefit to the plant, um, these studies suggested that they were, you know, they were still able to perform. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I want to ask about uh, water and uh, mycelium networks again, but not like what we talked about a uh, water earlier about about how mycelium helps create good soil structure, which allows the water to get through it, and and how by it retaining water, it helps the plant, you know, um, you know, not not uh, dry out in drought conditions. It does all these really good um, water retention aspects. I want to talk more about uh, uh, we as called cultivators watering the plant. Um, I can imagine that, um, you know, like anything, even water that is helpful can become dangerous if it's given too much of it. And I imagine that if we, you know, overwater, it'll cause the mycelium networks to rot. And then if we underwater, um, you know, maybe they'll, they'll, you know, dry out and cyst up. So now they're not working either. And so as cultivators, we kind of want to get this sweet spot somewhere in the middle where we're providing enough water for everything to thrive, but not enough to throw the mycelium network work out of balance. So do you have any advice around that for us? Yeah, sure. So I think one thing to consider is that the mycorrhizal fungi, they're, they're actually really good at um, helping the plants resist drought, right? So there's 
a lot of mechanisms they have where the mycorrhizae helps store the water. Um, they can also explore for it. So it's not, I think, as big of an issue for them to be a little bit underwatered, mm-hmm. right? Um, they seem to perform, the plants seem to perform really well with a reduction in water. Um, I know there's been a lot of research and we've done a little research um, with the group I'm with um, on watering amount. And some people would suggest you don't have to water as much if you you know, have this mycorrhizal association going. Um, not really sure how people would feel about that, <laughs> reducing their watering and everything like that. But um, I think that if they have these root system systems established, then um, they're just really well equipped to face that, um, you know, the stresses of drought and they can bounce back even if water becomes less and less available. I think that's a really good example of, of why um, mature uh, soil environments, like whether it's a, in, a, in a pot or a bed or, or uh, like a raised bed or something, that, that mature soils with, with lots of uh, fungal networks that are mature are just really going to give you a lot more of a buffer as a cultivator um, because... Uh, um, it, it it's more flexible than a pot that we that we 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 just mixed some soil and threw it in and and put our clone in there, and and now that pot is going to be uh, have much fewer defenses than a mature pot that's packed with mycelium networks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you know even thinking about this overwatering. Just like we talked about some of the, um, you know, saline soil and the heavy metal or, you know, heavy metal uptake mitigation, the mycelium can also help with uptake mitigation of water. So say you're overwatering, um, I think mycelium is really good at holding that and just helping to deliver this like really nice amount of water to the plant. Um, now, I'm not saying you can overwater and the mycelium is just going to take care of it. You know, we have to be conscientious of that as well. But your bandwidth of success is going to be wider with more mycelium. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, two more or, or one another question about water quality. Um, does, does, um, does the pH water or how much mineral content it has on it have any impact on the mycelium networks? Yeah, I mean, they don't, you know, they're they're similar to other things that we grow where they, they kind of want that neutral pH, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we do see responses if they have a really low pH or really high pH that they don't colonize and they don't perform very well. I've had this idea, which um, is not scientific, just based on observation, um, that uh, I, I wonder whether or not high mineral water um, would be more difficult for mycelium to transport because of its high mineral nature. I think of it as like chunky water. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and perhaps the mycelium either needs to A, separate out the, the, the minerals that are in the water or B, just refuses to use it. Um, do you have anything to offer on this on this idea of mineral water? Yeah, the only thing I 
would imagine is if I was the fungal hyphae or even you know, if I was the mycelium in there and the water was too chunky for me to deal with, I would probably try to secrete some enzymes to break it down oh, yeah. to make it easier to transport. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting theory. Mm-hmm. So after we break up the soil, say for example, uh, you know, we tend to um, encourage, um, you know, no-till as a general idea. But, you know, sometimes we're in positions where <clears throat> we just want to refresh a pot and we want to, we want to pop out the soil and we want to break it up and maybe we amend it. And then, and then maybe, maybe we're putting it in a new pot because our, our pots are getting old and janky. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the soil is aged soil and, it, and, and until we broke it up, it had a pretty complex mycelium network. Um, but but then we broke it up, and so now we've got all these uh, uh, propagule strands, right? Mm-hmm. And you were telling us earlier how any one of those strands can, you know, start a new um, a new network. How long would you suggest that it's going to take from the the day that I pop out the soil and break it up and amend it and put it back into a pot until those um, uh, pieces of mycelium, you know, find each other and get themselves uh, reassociated, and then are functioning and doing their job again. So, and is in this scenario, we're um, thinking of you've replanted a plant. There's a yes. plant in there. Yeah, they'll, they'll, there's a cannabis start in there. Is the okay? Idea. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. So, this is a this is a great question. Um, I know that if we're growing these um, fungi in vitro culture, so mm-hmm. if we're in the lab doing this, this can take a couple weeks, two to three weeks before the plant, or yeah, before the plant and the fungi come together and create that symbiosis. Um, in this one study I'm thinking about, and it was with cannabis. It it was about. It was suggested that it's about six weeks, but that there were these benefits that were noticed even ahead of that time, right? So when we run our bioassays, we usually let it go eight weeks, and that that's the timeline that we've stuck with to see this was a really good colonized root system, right? So, you know, we know that in those lab conditions, everything is like perfect. You know, we have this spore right next to this root organ culture and it's connecting like we're putting it right in this like perfect condition. Right. And we can see that in a couple of weeks. Um, we run those bioassays for eight weeks. We have a study here that says six weeks. So um, it's a little more challenging if you have something that doesn't go very long. Like some of our hydroponic studies, for example, we we're looking at lettuce. Well, after a month of growing lettuce hydroponically, it's time to harvest it, right? Mm-hmm. So it was really hard for us to find really good colonization throughout and all of the, like this huge root biomass that it produced. So yeah, I think we generally tell people to, that you wouldn't see any type of effects for, you know, three or four weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's... So that's exactly that's, what I was going yeah. for. And, and the follow-up is, 
I really think that this makes a case that if we are going to do any kind of that rejuvenation of pots where we're going to be breaking up mature pots, uh, mending them, maybe resoiling some, and then putting them back in, that um, we really want to do that either much earlier in the spring or even the prior fall. And in, in either case, either add like a, a small cover crop, a love of small mm-hmm. plants or, or maybe like a, or maybe like comfrey or something to be a placeholder for our cannabis plant. So that by the time, um, you know, end of May comes and we want to start uh, planting our cannabis starts into the soil, that that work of reconnecting all of the mycelial strands um, has already been done because as as you and I are are discussing it, you know, a lot of people will will you know break up the pots, do the amendment, fill up the pots, and then and then put their cannabis plants in there within a week. Mm-hmm. And that tells me that through at least um, you know most of their veg period, that plant is living in a suboptimum living environment because the mycelial mycelium networks are broken at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about some of these, like, you know, we're, we're more in this like agricultural, I mean, more in this agricultural type industry. And when we talk about regenerative ag, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing, you know, you're trying for minimal disturbance right? No till or strip tillage. But if you can't do that, okay, you can't do that, right? But like what you're saying makes so much sense because you can, you know, do your amendments, do whatever, you know, you're, you're thinking you really need to do to the soil and then plant that cover crop. Let it sit there. I mean, having living roots, even with your crop, right? Relieving this type of compaction and things like that. Um, it makes sense. It's same thing with like, um, crop diversity, right? Or like a rotation, right? You kind of want to get away from that. I've always planted this one plant in this soil. Um, it takes the nutrients different, right? And then try to replenish it with like a type of cover crop. Um, you know, one thing I was thinking when you were saying this was, and asking these questions and something that just kind of came to mind is, it's really interesting that we will we'll let these bioassays go for eight weeks, right? But there's been so many experiences I've had where I inoculate in transplant and I've seen a clear impact of a reduction of transplant shock. So it's I'm not really sure exactly what that's due to. Is this some type of carrier effect um does somehow the plant know this fungus is there and they're releasing some other types of root exudates but that's something that i've witnessed quite a bit at applying mycorrhizal fungi and this inoculum is you see this transplant um shock like resistance Mm -hmm. and that's just something interesting to me because if we don't see that symbiosis occurring for however long it might not occur for but then we're still seeing some type of positive impact it just makes me wonder what else is 
going on yeah you know below the ground for sure it does for sure again more more room for research for the people coming up <laughs> um, absolutely um are there specific soil amendments that either help or hinder um mycelium and the mycorrhiza symbiosis um you know you, you, the may answer may just be well keep your soil generally balanced and healthy and, and and that that's reasonable but but there also could be like some amendment that you're like oh this is a key building block um, you know, for mycelium networks and, and you should make sure that you add this or something. Yeah, that's a great question. I know that um, we've read some literature about biochar mm-hmm. being helpful um, in, you know, increasing colonization. Um, I know that we really avoid having anything really high in phosphorus. So high phosphorus contents can really um, reduce the level of colonization. So I just say to consider, definitely consider the phosphorus content. It's interesting because mycorrhizal fungi are so wonderful at acquiring phosphorus. That's like their flagship nutrient. But if you plant it in, if you plant this plant in this really phosphorus rich environment, the mycorrhizal fungi doesn't establish maybe because it thinks, why do I need to be here? Yeah, my job Um, would be redundant. Right. So there's a lot of research on, um, on, on phosphorus levels and um, even fertilizing with a lower P. So, when when that's becoming established, right? Right on. Um, and I and I've got a, a fertilizer question to follow up that with. Um, you know, while we focus mostly on natural farming techniques on shaping fire, many folks uh, choose the ease of using you know salt based fertilizers and A plus B kind of stuff for indoors. Mm-hmm. How do these sort of like sodium fertilizers impact um, mycelium and the mycorrhiza symbiosis in any way? Well, we I am. You know, I can't, I don't know really, but I know that we had to use some of that material in our hydroponic study and the lettuce, that study wasn't as successful, but um, we also worked with basil and it seemed to still, you know, it's still, it was still able to work with it. We just made sure that the P was low Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, because that's really important. So, so to kind of wrap this up a little bit, um, you know, this, the more I prepared for this show, the more complex I realized that my mycelium networks and mycorrhiza symbiosis is, right? I'm like, I was like, you know, you know a couple days into, into building my question path for this episode, and I'm like, holy crap, this is like two episodes, like, and, and a college course, right? Like, there's so right. much here. And you, of course, as somebody who's dedicated themselves to studying fungus, knows this. So, so um, as kind of a wrap up, there are there are certainly things that that I didn't ask you because I didn't know to ask you because I don't have the the, the depth that you have got. And and if our goal with this show was to you know have cannabis cultivators be more aware of uh, mycelium networks to consider them more um, and and how to support them when they are growing either in beds or in containers and then and then and then understand the mycorrhiza symbiosis and and the importance of it so so we continually um you know, respect the role that that uh, the living soul is playing, soil is playing. Um, 
what would you uh, say uh, is that something that I may have missed that would be helpful to cultivators in in making sure they've got uh, healthy and functioning mycelial networks? Yeah, um, I mean, I think you asked some amazing questions. I think that you covered um, things really well. I mean, everything from the mycelium to describing mycorrhizal fungi, their role, everything like that. I think one thing that we didn't um, necessarily touch on was just um, mycorrhizal products and not to put any, not going to put any type of plugs in there for any particular product. But what I would tell people to be aware of is label claims, Mm. right? So if you're, if you want to incorporate mycorrhizal fungi um, by going out and buying a product, look at the claim. Don't just look at this soil contains mycorrhizae because one thing I've really noticed um, through my time with with the company I'm working with now is there's a lot of products out there that will claim we have mycorrhizae, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But when you look at their claim, it's extremely low. And so, you know, if you're having a fraction of, you know, a fraction of a propagule for you know, a cubic inch of soil, like that's really not going to do you any good, right? So just be aware um, that there are a lot of products out there that might have a really, really low claim. And so you may think you're introducing mycorrhizal fungi through soils or different inoculums, but just try to educate yourself on, on the levels. And if you see something coming in at a fraction of a propagule, it's probably not delivering what you're hoping it will. Right on. That is really insightful. I'm glad that you added that. And you know, this is um, this is also something that we talk about when we're talking about microbe communities, right? Because there's there's all these like you know new to the market you know microbe community infusion products right and Mm -hmm. and 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 people just buy them and because they they like the marketing of it but then you know you you know if somebody with with a with a biology background looks at the label they're all like you know what is this you know it's just Mm -hmm. you know and 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 I think it's it's all it's good for all of us to be uh, savvy and a bit skeptical uh, consumers when it comes to um, you know science that we may not may not be entirely familiar with. Yeah, I mean, really, with all of our products, right? <laughs> <You're> but right. <laughs> but and you know, even questioning, even seeing claims that you think are okay, cool. This seems like a decent enough um, level. Um, I'm more of a fan of over inoculating as long as the carrier isn't going to cause any type of phytotoxicity. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sometimes companies will say, you know, apply this much and this is what's best, you know, on the business aspect. But um, I'm, I'm a bit more of a fan of given it a little extra let's just put it that way <laughs> right on right on so another another good point to know your carrier know what your filler products are in whatever products you're using right yeah so so stephanie thank you so much for uh spending your time with us today and 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 sharing your insight into mycelium networks and the mycorrhizae symbiosis um uh, i know that i learned a lot especially about the mycorrhizae symbiosis like when 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 you know i really 
got to wrapping my head around that that it is a process more than a thing. Um, I mean, clearly it broke my brain there in set one, but but um, you know, throughout the rest of the show, I, I I realized that the impacts that that has as far as how I've been taking care of my own um, uh, growing containers. So 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 thank you for um, you know sharing your insight and and your time and your good cheer uh, with everybody here on Shaping Fire. Oh, you're so welcome. It's really been a pleasure. Awesome. So uh, if you would like to uh, get in contact with Stephanie Garcia, um, you can do so through LinkedIn. Um, unlike some of our other guests, she's not super uh, active on, on you know the Twitter, Instagram uh, that we normally give you. Uh, and that's because she's in the lab uh, where, where, where she's doing the great work. So, uh, but, but if there's some reason that you want to reach out to her, um, uh, you can reach her on LinkedIn. And uh, that's uh, Stephanie with a PH and not an F. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.